Dr. John Harvison, the pathologist, had finally arrived at the crime scene on Christmas Eve, 26 hours after Sophie's body was found. And who knew how much longer it had lain there before that? As for a time of death, Harvison could now only make an educated guess. The body temperature had long since leveled off to its surroundings. He found no indication of sexual assault or of any recent sexual activity. He noted almost 50 wounds on the body. There were lacerations on the back of Sophie's hands and to the back of her head, and her skull was fractured. Harbison declared this the cause of death. He thought the slate and the concrete block found by the body were both likely weapons. But the injuries told him there must have been a third weapon, something that was missing from the scene. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analysts and my ongoing analysis with former New York City prosecutor and retired FBI profiler Jim Clementi. Now, before we dive back in, I want to give you a trigger warning. Listener discretion is advised in this episode as we discuss the crime scene behaviour and much more. Now, with that having been said, let's jump back in where we left off. To me... This crime scene and the body shows overkill. To me, three different weapons used tells me, one, this person is not sophisticated in how to kill. Two, they were enraged. I believe this was a frenetic crime. This was a response to what the victim did or didn't do in response to what the offender did. So what I'm saying is I believe that this was a targeted fantasy-based crime, that the victim was the target of the offender's fantasy and the offender had a plan and He worked himself up, whether getting drunk, lowering his inhibitions, whatever it was, he worked himself up the courage to go and approach her. Was that because she was already in bed and he saw her through the window? Was she reading in bed? Was there a light on? Whatever it was, I don't know. But he saw her and decided, I'm going to go for it. And he thought, one, He's, he's everything and he's entitled and all he has to do because he thinks she's this wild sexual, you know, pervert that all he has to do is say he wants her and she's going to just comply and she didn't comply and she didn't want him and she fought back and she ran and that is what enraged him. Not. It wasn't his intent. I'm going to go there and attack her and have to bludgeon her in order to get her to comply. He never even considered that she wouldn't comply. He thinks so much of himself. He's got such an ego. He's such a narcissist that he believes everybody who he's targeting will want to join in. And his fantasy was so fucking far off the mark 
that when she responded like any normal person would, it's in the middle of the night. I don't know you. I don't want to know you. Or, or what are you doing here now? Kind of thing. You know, go home, go away. She may have even stepped outside and closed the door because she wa- didn't want to invite him in. And that, you know, that could have put her, uh, she could have gotten locked out. She could have been vul- more vulnerable there. And when she, you know, responded in whatever way she did, um, and, you know, she she enraged him. I mean, that's how I believe this went down. I believe that the offender in this case freaked out for a while, did not at all plan or prepare for this. This was very impulsive and that he most likely then sort of gathered his you know wits about him and tried to after he left i mean he he left the scene immediately and after he left i believe he started thinking about cleaning up himself he would have gotten blood spatter on him and his clothing his shoes his coat his hands and and also maybe you know contact blood patterns on his clothes and his hands and his and his shoes and i think then he would start thinking about how do I clean this up? How do I get this off me? And then he would have started thinking about what's my cover story, basically. So it was a targeted but unplanned attack. It was very impulsive. The offender had a fantasy about what would happen when he made a play for her. It didn't go that way at all. She didn't cooperate. That got him mad. She fought back and ran. That got him really mad. And this rage that came up in him was what motivated him to kill her. What do you think about Jim? I mean, she's five foot, you know, quite small, quite petite. And as I also wrote the notes that this seemed to be something that unfolded three different weapons, you know, the using this concrete breeze block when you see it, because you see it with blood on, et cetera. I mean, it was a very bloody crime scene. It was a very brutal murder. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very violent, three separate weapons, but she really fought hard. I saw pictures of her hands. She had a lot of bruising and lots of cuts where she had mm-hmm. really fought for her life. And I guess going back to victimology, her mom and her dad both said that she was strong-willed. Although she was small, petite, she was strong-willed, a real, you know, full of character. Didn't use the word feisty, but that she spoke her mind and she wasn't afraid to be direct. So the things that you're talking about of, you know, I felt it was something that was unplanned, unpremeditated and happened in the moment unsophisticated but there still seems to be overkill in this you know she's five foot yeah. she's tiny i think there was a plan but it wasn't the plan the plan to was not to murder her. her yeah no the plan was to get with her and he thought everything was going to go the way he had anticipated it and probably lived it over in his mind over and over again before he did this but he just needed the opportunity to have his inhibitions lowered so that he would then go ahead and act. And I think that's exactly what happened here. I mean, one of the detectives did say he felt it happened up at the house. 
because there is a there is there's a couple of hundred yards from the house to downhill to where that gate is to where she's found right and it, you know i keep thinking about the different hypotheses of how did she get down there why was she found because even where she was she was in the briars there's lots of you know right. brambles briars barbed wire it's and there's blood her blood on the gate which they lost the gate i mean we'll talk about the investigation and forensics etc but it's thinking about well, what got her down there you know rather than it the, one of the guards are saying well i think I, it unfolded at the house but there's only one blood trace which is on the back door which is t- is hers where the scene when you see it it's very bloody so is she did she well, run away from the house and if she was running yeah. away from the house why was she trying to get to a neighbor or did someone appear at the gate or did she forget to shut the gate and her husband said did you shut the gate it's difficult to know what you know what would take her down to that gate in the dead of night so you mentioned it was a full moon but it's yeah. very dark there very remote yeah but i don't think it's a coincidence i don't think she was out at the gate unless i mean i guess there is one possibility if somebody was stalking her and watching her at night and she happened to come out after the phone call with her husband put her boots on to go shut the gate and but to me that would i don't know why there would be any of her blood on the on the door at the back door i just i think she was accosted there that's when i think you know, one of the weapons that was used against her, which was never found, by the way. And so what I would do, what I no, what I would expect this offender did was he took that weapon with him and tossed it in a body of water. So I would be looking for the offender to have traveled to a place where there's a body of water and tossed it in. And I would have done, you know, metal detector searching and and so forth at the at the bottom of of wherever you could toss that weapon from that's so you're where talking I'd be about the small axe that yes people said was by the back door to chop wood yes. that that was missing i think what it appears is that there was a struggle and she may have been hit or slapped and she was bleeding she tried to turn around and get back in the door and the door was locked and so she had to run. So she ran away down the driveway. And I believe that the, that the several cuts on the back of her head were from her being attacked with that weapon while she's running away. And she's probably blindly going into briars and all this other stuff. And then she got caught. And that's when I believe she was hit with the first blunt force object. And then when she was incapacitated, I think he was so enraged, he came back, he picked up that big block, came back and smashed it down on her. Like, I'll teach you. And I think that was the progression of events that happened that would end up in this way. I think that's why she was out there. She must have been prevented from going back in that house. And that could have been either he stepped between her and the door or or the door was locked. She couldn't get in. So her, there, there was a neighbor who thought that he heard an animal screaming. It sounds like it could well have been Sophie, 
screaming. Mm. I mean, he was visiting a, a friend and they had some drinks and he was getting into his car and he heard around two, three o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. what stopped him in his tracks. And then he said he put it down to an animal, got in his car and drove off. It could well have been uh, an animal, but it's interesting that it stopped him in his tracks, that he did. Mm. He was getting into the car, stopped, listened, then got in. So it could be the, the, the timeline. It's very difficult to say, but we know her body was found around 10 o'clock the next morning. And as you said, it wasn't hidden. There was no concealment. And it was Shirley Foster from the house um, further up the hill who lived with Alfie Lyons, who found her body by the side of the road or by the side of the, the driveway, I should say. And then she alerted the guarder who came out and what we do know is that her body was left there for another 13 hours, which is very problematic and I'm sure very distressing for the family as well. Mm. We're talking about 1996. We're not talking about, you know, the 1960s. And it just made me think about Nicole Simpson and, you know, that whole, yes, DNA forensics, it had come in, but West Cork... And the fact they hadn't dealt with a case before. A murder like before, this. yeah. Yeah. Um, all seemed to play in, but 13 hours, her lying out in the elements. The, yeah, the only thing I will say that, that, that kind of mediates that is the fact that the temperature was so cold. So Right, I and don't frozen. That, right. So I don't think that, it, that, that evidence was destroyed because of that. But... It, you know, probably was preserved because of that. But I think that they had no procedures. They had no experience or procedures for dealing with a murder victim. They treated it as, you know, sort of a, a, a regular crime. And they didn't have, you know, homicide detectives who worked hundreds of cases to come in and and be able to read the scene and know where to look. I understand that there was a there was a footprint but it was in sort of a, a gravelly area. And the, the solution that they used to try to make a cast out of the footprint or shoe print, actually, um, <laughs> went, you know, seeped right into the gravel. Um, there are other materials you can use that won't do that, but, you know, they apparently didn't have it or the experience to do that. But it would have been interesting to know what kind of boot and what kind of what size and all that that would have all been very helpful i saw a picture of it i don't know if i saw a scale uh in the picture but you know they should have been able to try to size that and and then you from that you might be able to get the height and and even something about the weight of the of the offender but uh, that didn't seem to happen. Or it might be in the police file and we just don't know about it. Who knows? Yes. Well, we don't know what's in the police file. And of course, the Garda files seem to be very problematic of whether they've just kept things close to their chest or vest, as Americans say. Um, it's very difficult to know. But what what I did find out through watching Murder in the Cottage was that the DNA under her fingernails was looked at. Well, you did see her hands in that particular docu-series and you could see her nails were, they weren't torn, but you could see that she had fought very hard and there was material underneath them. You could see Mm. it 
to the eye. But they don't talk about what was found. They just talk about the main suspect that everybody looked at. And it wasn't, it didn't relate to him. But it doesn't mean that material matter wasn't found at all. So I didn't want to make any, draw any conclusion from that. And the, also the blood on the door, that's where they talked about that being Sophie's. And the, the hair, there was some hair found in her hands. That was her hair, mm. which would make sense if she's trying to protect herself and push off. You know, she fought, for, fought hard for her life. But yeah. it's unclear whether there were any other forensics, anything else that was recovered at the scene. It sounds like there wasn't. But as you know, it's, it's difficult to say that without having read the reports. Yeah. And look, I can't imagine trying to do a homicide investigation if you've never done a homicide investigation before without, you know, a tremendous amount of experience doing it. I mean, there's all sorts of pitfalls and I'm sure they can, you know, they've been trained on investigations and they meet a certain standard, but, uh, the fact is that when you do multiple homicide investigations, many different kinds of of homicide investigations, then you know what to look for. And I think one of the reasons why there was no real forensics is just that they didn't know what to look for. They didn't know um, how to find it. And, it. and it's an exterior, blustery environment. It was not, it was not something that they really understood. And I think a lot of people just trampled the crime scene, looking for evidence, but not being able to find it. Well, that was my reference to Nicole, of that image that I had in my head of, that was on the news of everyone traipsing through the crime scene. And I got the sense that that's what happened here. Um, the other thing to say is that there was a scenes of crime detective, Detective Eugene Gilligan, who appears... I think he's on the Netflix show as well, um, but he's in The Murder at the Cottage, and he talks from a position of some knowledge. But one of the things that concerned me was that there was a discussion about how lucky this perpetrator was. They were very lucky, as in there were no forensics left at the scene. You know, was he criminally sophisticated or was he lucky? There was that sort of conversation, and they landed on that he was he was someone that was lucky. And... I don't necessarily agree with that. I think there's a perfect storm here of a number of things that that happened. What, well, what I you... think part of I think part of his luck was that he committed a crime of homicide in a town where nobody living had ever worked a homicide. And so as sophisticated as they may be in other investigations, they weren't sophisticated in that area. So he was lucky that they didn't know where to look or how to look for the things they should have been looking for. So in that sense, I do think he was lucky. I don't know that he was, I don't think he was criminally sophisticated, the offender, and I don't think he was forensically sophisticated because I don't think he planned this. I don't, I think he impulsively committed this crime out of rage and that I think he was probably drunk or stressed to the max uh, which lowered his inhibitions, which which enabled him to go out and try to make a play for her. And at, you know, at three in the morning or two in the morning, whenever it was. And so I don't know about 
you know, I mean, I don't necessarily believe that he was wearing gloves or that he had on any kind of protective stuff because I don't believe that he intended to commit this crime when he went there. But, you know, I I don't necessarily think he was adult, somebody who is stupid, just somebody who has not committed this crime. So I do think I I do think he was lucky because because they had never they didn't have the experience. The cops didn't have the experience they needed to know, but also just nobody saw him there. Nobody it was such a small town. It was so late at night. Nobody saw him leaving there. Um there are some sightings that you know that we'll talk about later but not at the crime scene and nothing i don't believe he even went in the house so he didn't leave any forensics there i think they hoped they would find something there and they didn't and so i think when you're talking about outside on a blustery winter night in west cork in skull west cork i think a lot of forensic evidence just blows away, you know. And that area in particular, where there's nothing that would take you there, you know, it's off the beaten track. Someone had. Oh yeah, to go that's there another thing. Yeah, right. someone had to go there specifically, right? Because it's not yeah, like you're just walking through a street. It, no, it's a very difficult place to to find. Um, but when you see some of the videos of her at her place, I mean, it is very blustery, you know. There's all sorts of winds and and hail and all sorts of, you know, environmental factors that I think help the offender get away with it. So he was lucky because of that location. But this is way too random a place to have been a victim of opportunity. Somebody just passing through and finds this vulnerable woman. This is somebody who, who targeted her. Uh, specifically. I'm not saying they knew her well, but they targeted her specifically. Sometimes that can happen, as we saw in Victim F. Sometimes that can happen from a complete stranger. Mm. Sometimes it can happen with somebody who's an acquaintance or somebody who's, you know, more, you know, than just an acquaintance. But with Sophie, I mean, similar to Denise and Victim F, for me, looking at Sophie on screen and on camera, she is very beautiful. I mean, as a person inside and out, she, even when she's just on the beach in natural pictures, she stands out. She's striking to me. And of course, who she was, the fact that she's well known in Paris in her own right as a producer, but also as her husband, she, you know, would she be almost celebrity status to some? You know, the fact that she buys or Daniel buys this beautiful white house, you know, it's it's stunning as a house. It's not a tiny cottage. Right. It's a, you know, beautiful house that she has done very simply. But she there's an air of mystery around her. I would say if people didn't really know who she was, even though she didn't flaunt it, she didn't act in a way from what what you hear from all the people who knew a little bit about her. She was down to earth. She was sweet. She was bookish. She was a gentle person. She didn't flaunt her beauty and certainly didn't want to be known for for who she was and certainly not known for her natural beauty. But that can attract 
people. And we're not going to get into suspects in this episode because I wanted to hear, first of all, in the organic way that we tend to do, Jim. And just so my listeners know, Jim and I haven't discussed this case ever before. I'm hearing what Jim's thinking about victimology and the crime scene assessment for the first time. And we will get into the police investigation and what happened. And Certainly, in, it's very hard not to talk about suspects, isn't it? Given the framing of the podcast and and the docu series. Yeah, but at the same time, you know, we can actually look at the the crime scene and the behavior exhibited at the crime scene, and and see what kind of planning and and preparation went into it. I believe there's no question this is a disorganized scene. This is not an organized scene that somebody planned out well in advance, but that doesn't mean they didn't have a plan. It was just not a plan to commit murder. It was a plan to do something else. And her reaction to that, I think, ended up in his mind justifying what he did, which is outrageous. And if just the cultural context as well, it's coming up to Christmas. People in the village, there'd all, there'd been a local party and people, you know, I don't know if you've been to Ireland actually, Jim, but the pub scene is a very big scene. You haven't been? No, I haven't. Well, it's a beautiful part of the world, both, you know, if you're in Northern Ireland or equally Cork or anywhere is stunning. I mean, absolutely stunning. I always wanted to go. And I think when I was there at the time, when I was in London, there were just, there were so many things that I had to do. I just never got a chance to go away. But I do intend to, you know, um, when I did my 23andMe uh, ancestry, I am 49.4% Irish. So I would love to go there. Yeah. We thought we were Scottish, but we apparently were Scottish from Ireland. We moved from, my family must have moved from from Ireland to Scotland. And that's because I know my grandmother was from Scotland and my grandfather was from England, but both of them apparently must have been Irish because I'm, I'm half Irish and half Italian. Well, you absolutely have to go. I mean, it is a stunning yeah. country and the people are just so lovely, warm. Every time I, I go there, you just get such a wonderful greeting and there's authenticity and I can't say enough good things about it, but the Irish, right. kind of similar to the English, are big drinkers and the Scottish. You know, alcohol features a lot. <laughs> I have a lot of very good Irish friends that, are, that are, I've drunk many a glass of wine with but just locating it in Christmas, you know, at Christmas, it, it, it is different from the American culture because we, we spend much more time in the pub, particularly around Christmas time. Mm. And therefore, you mentioned drinking and it would be quite normal to have a boozy night in the local pub and a lock-in. And then, you know, people make their own way home. But, you know, coming up to Christmas, people like to be getting ready for Christmas as well, Christmas right. Day, and she They're had in that plans cheery the next spirit. day. Right. Yeah. So I think that it's very likely that the person that did this, um, you know, used alcohol or drugs or some other inhibition disinhibitor to lower his inhibitions and act 
And this is something that, unfortunately for Sophie, um, you know, could never have ended well. Yeah, in terms of there being a, a confrontation and her reboundrying someone and them yeah. not being happy about that. And the the targeting is, that's what I arrived at. And in particular, the unfolding of events, them happening, something that was in the moment and unfortunately, yes, had grave consequence for for Sophie. So perhaps we'll leave it there on this recording because I, I do have other questions that I want to ask you about, particularly relating to the police investigation, potential suspect sightings, um, and the lines of inquiry in terms of decisions that investigators took, and also what we see on screen. Um, I wanted to get a couple of episodes in with you without talking about Ian Bailey, but it's very difficult when you equally watch Murder in the Cottage. It's a documentary that it's Murder in the Cottage, the search for justice for Sophie, but actually 70% of it focuses on him. So it's, right. it's very hard not to form an opinion and not to think about it. And we've talked about this many times, Jim, but you know, when people talk about well, they, they talk about the Amanda Knox case versus the Meredith Kircher case. You know, the the victim gets lost. And I do feel that Sophie has got lost in the noise of the podcast, the two docu-series, because there's a very vibrant, camera-loving character. And he's not even a character. He was a clear suspect that the police focused on and seemed to focus on him from a very early time in this investigation and have never really lost focus on him, I would say. But I'm very intrigued to know what you make of all of that, the decisions that they took and him um, in terms of what you see on camera. My my initial thought was, we've discussed the case before, the staircase, that it felt very Michael Peterson in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, the play to camera all the time. Yes. but. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that resonated with you, but it, it felt yeah, even sure. more so than him. Uh, and he didn't just play to the camera. He, he played to the investigators. He played to the public. He And he's made some really bizarre statements as well. But uh, yeah, I would love to talk to you about him next time we get together on this. But this is a case that I'm just, I very, I firmly believe that there was some connection between the victim and the offender and whether that was that she knew him or was acquainted with him or vice versa or whether it was that um, she was being stalked one of those things happened because i don't i don't know for sure which but but i don't believe at all that this was uh, some rab- random you know victim of opportunity for a uh, a violent person i think this was he meant to be there he meant to be there he had to find her and uh nobody just randomly uh you know knocked on her door at 3 a.m or something well it could have been 3 a.m nobody just randomly knocked on her door at 1 or 2 a.m yeah, I would uh, agree with that. The victimology 
very important here and for us to keep remembering Sophie. She was a mother too to mm. her son, Pierre-Louis, and the family who still feel that they're searching for justice. So let's wrap on that point. And I hope everybody enjoyed listening to Jim talk us through the process. It's, it's very you? organic when when we discuss these things. And like I said, we don't know what each other's going to say, but right. it's interesting. We've arrived at very similar conclusions, although I know Jim would share this too. I would love to be able to see the police file, to be able to read the yeah. forensic reports, to be able to actually see yeah, the autopsy, everything behind the scenes that would help us far more. But those particular shows, the Netflix show, Sophie West Cork, and also Murder at the Cottage, which was on Sky, really does help you to be able to see and be in West Cork and see the, see the people involved rather than just hear them on the podcast. So we're in there and I'm looking forward to speaking to you again, Jim. So thank you very much, Jim Clementi, and looking forward to chatting to you again. Uh, happy to be here, Laura. Thanks for having me. Jumping back in here. That's a lot to think about and deconstruct, right? What did you make of our analysis? Send me your reactions, your thoughts or comments on social, Instagram at Crime Analyst or on Twitter at The Crime Analyst, or email me via my website, www.crime-analyst.com. And as you heard there, I'm not done yet. I wanted to talk with Jim about some of the footage and behaviour we see on camera in the Sky docu-series, Murder at the Cottage, The Search for Justice for Sophie. So you now have time to watch it, if you haven't done so already. And if you haven't watched it, well, don't worry, you can join our discussion in the Intelligence Cell as we detail our thoughts in next week's episode. So until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrude.
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.